Okay, three, two, one. We're recording. All right, Max Lieben, H3X Technologies, co-founder and CTO. Thanks very much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we we spoke over email a little bit, and I am really impressed with the technology that you guys are building. I think that would be a great place to start. A little bit of an elevator pitch in terms of what you guys are building, what you're hoping to do in the future. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so at H3X, we're building the lightest integrated motor drives in the world. Um, the end application is for electric aircraft, uh, but also a couple other markets like motorsport and some uh, marine applications as well. Um, the whole concept is that we're taking the electric propulsion system and combining it into pretty much one product um, on the propulsion side. So that includes the electric motor, the inverter, our electronics, and motor controller, and the gearbox. So uh, motor, inverter, and gearbox are the three main systems, and they all are packaged into one product. That's insane. And you're 25, right? I think we're the same age? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 25, like, and so are my other co-founders as well. Like, do you ever take that step back and realize what you're doing is like kind of crazy? You know, you finished university, you got your <laughs> master's, and you're building this insane tech? Like this is pretty yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's definitely crazy, um, and it's it's definitely been a wild journey so far. And I, I think <laughs> if we do well, it will continue to be a wild journey. Um, right. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, that there's the best time to take you know big risks is when you're pretty much straight out of school and you don't have quite as many commitments and responsibilities. You know, hundred percent to to you know go for it and see what happens. You know, worst case, you learn a lot, you have a good time. Um, and then, you know, you do something else, but you know, hopefully you get out of it. Um, one one thing I, I, I forgot to add, um, it's, it's a uh, three times lighter than anything that is currently on the market. Um, our technology enables a three X weight reduction for a given power level. So, um, that's actually part of where the name H three X comes from. So, there's three co-founders. It's three times lighter than anything that currently exists. Um, and uh, also the uh, H3X, uh, the product mm-hmm. is shaped like a hexagon. So there's That's the awesome. explanation. <laughs> well, I, look, I mean, speaking of taking risks, we, in our last call, you mentioned that you considered yourself more of a CTO than a CEO. You weren't the most entrepreneurial type, you said. I mean, you've got incredible credentials. You worked at Tesla. You worked at SpaceX big names, big positions. But I would say, what is the hardest part been for you for adjusting this this kind of stuff? And I think given that startups are a bit more in vogue now, I mean, it's glamorous for sure, but what is some tough love that you would give for this road? Because it's not an easy one. So yeah, when I said that I'm not the most entrepreneurial of the three of us, I think that was uh, mostly a result of the fact that uh, when I graduated with my master's degree, you know, I wasn't really thinking, oh, can I go start, you know, a company? It didn't right. really cross my mind. You know, I think like a lot of people, you know, you graduate with your degree and you, you know, apply to a bunch of different jobs. A lot of them are larger corporations, and um, you know, that's just like the path that you kind of assume is the right path, um, mm-hmm. and there isn't always someone saying, Hey, have you considered this possibility or what about this? Um, and so, you know, I, I guess people who 
maybe started more off more entrepreneurial than me and spirit might have immediately gone to that as like, maybe I could do this, but it, you know, it wasn't something that I necessarily considered at the time of graduating. Um, right. Since then, of course, um, you know, I have learned by necessity, you know, what does it mean to be entrepreneurial and, um, you know, what, how did I have to, you know, um, expand my horizons? Um, For sure. and so, yeah, I think in terms of the hardest part, um, to, to adjust to is, you know, you need to be, um, very, um, dynamic as a person. Um, you know, you can't just wear one hat. It's just like, I'm the you know, technology person. I, I'm the CTO and that's that, you know, For when sure. you're a co-founder, there are all sorts of things that come across your desk, um, all sorts of conversations that have to be had um, across the, the board of the company. So, um, you know, it could be a business thing. It could be, um, you know, product focused. It could be um, you know, marketing. It could be, I mean, there's any number of things that are wrapped into running a business that aren't just technical, right? Um, right. That being said, our whole founding team is technical. So we're all three of us are engineers and so to some extent, we've all had to learn this. Um, y Combinator was a huge help in getting us started and thinking about the right things and, you know, how to approach the business aspects. Um, specifically, you know, the main things they drive home are, you know, talk to your customers, like really figure out what you need to do to solve their problem, make something mm-hmm. that people want, you know. Um, and so there's a big emphasis on that. Um, but also, you know, Jason, our CEO, he did have his own consulting firm that he started right out of his master's degree. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I, I had never seen anyone do that before. And so, you know, that's what I mean, where like he was already kind of the entrepreneurial type right off the bat. Um, you know, he, he saw that opportunity and seized it. Um, that's what he did until we right. started H3X. Um, so, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, was there a domain that you never experienced before? that when you did go into that CTO position, you realized how much you liked it. Like maybe it was sales. Maybe you'd never done sales before and you, you love putting together deals now. Maybe it was public speaking. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's podcasts like this. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, um, so I've always enjoyed the hardcore engineering, the technology. Um, I think what I've really come to enjoy uh, that's, I guess, newer is um, getting out and talking to people and, and um, you know, really you know, showcasing what we're working on, which, you know, I guess isn't, it's not quite sales, but, you know, for example, we, we have gone to a few conferences recently. We were at the, um, ARPA E technology showcase here in Denver a couple of weeks ago. We were also at the electric uh, and hybrid aircraft technology symposium in Frankfurt, um, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it's really great to, you know, we, we bring along our prototypes, they fit in a carry on, you know, suitcase. So it's, uh, that in itself is kind of funny. Um, 330 horsepower in a suit, you know, <laughs> carry on. It's amazing. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, really getting, getting the prototypes in front of people, you know, like having them like pick it up and ask us questions and really getting to know, you know, potential customers, potential suppliers, there's mm-hmm. very important and, um, you know, real human aspects to running a tech company where, you know, it, it is the people that makes that make the magic happen, right? It's not, the technology Definitely. does not, you know, kind of culminate on its own. And so um, a lot of it is really making those connections with, you know, your supply chain, with, um, you know, your customers, and especially coming out of the pandemic, it's been made very clear that that kind of face-to-face, hands-on, you know, hold the prototype, that kind of interaction is extremely valuable um, and and sort of 
um, developing those relationships. For sure. And I mean, speaking of going to conferences, interacting with people, even your co-founders starting businesses beforehand, I'm really curious to know how you've gone about hiring and recruiting because startups are a bit more in vogue now. Um, You might be getting people that just want a job as opposed to the H3X job. How have you found undiscovered talent? I mean, some of your recruits have been from the University of Wisconsin where you did your schooling, but what have been some of your methods? What advice would you share? Yeah. Um, well, I think the first one, like you mentioned, is really leverage your existing network and and try to, um, you know, when you whenever you can expand that network, because a lot of times, uh, you know, the best talent is, is maybe one or two degrees of separation away. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we are very fortunate because we had a, a combined um, background and experience between Wisconsin racing at UW-Madison, which was the Formula SAE team, um, mm-hmm. both the actual students, but also all the sponsors that we had on our, our racing team um, that made the car possible. You know, we had already established some connections in industry that way. Um, and then, um, but also, you know, Jason and I did our master's degrees at WEMPEC, which is the Wisconsin Electric Machines and Power Electronics Consortium. So there's a, a vast network of both students, professors, um, and industry um, that you know, you build in your time at a program like that. And so, you know, between those two things, we really um, started from a pretty good place in terms of um, building our company. Um, like you mentioned, a lot of our initial hires have been from those networks. Um, and it's right. really important when you're starting off, you know, your first five, six employees, and, you know, they are, you know, live or die, make the company succeed. Uh, but not just that, it's also, you know, make the company the way you want it to be. Um, you're really mm-hmm. kind of setting the baseline and, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not the person that's gonna, you know, you know, harp on corporate culture or company culture, but, um, right. you know, especially before I started this, but, you know, since I've been doing this, you really get a, a much more tangible view of how company culture plays a role in, you know, what it is, you know, what it's like to be at work every day and, and how does that affect people's productivity? And is everyone having fun? Like, is everyone having a good time? And even For when sure. they're not having a good time, are they learning stuff? Do they feel like, you know, they are getting something out of it? Um, so that's all very important. Um, but to answer your, your specific question of, you know, maybe how do you find undiscovered talent? Um, we have had a couple experiences with that too. Um, and, for example, you know, there are certain candidates that, you know, maybe on paper they haven't had a job in, in a year, right? And so usually that's like a red flag um, for recruiters. Um, but, you know, if they otherwise look like a great candidate with the right background for the position, you know, don't make assumptions about why they, you know, haven't been working. You know, you don't know what happened, right? So, you right. know, kind of making reasonable assumptions and minimizing the number of assumptions you make when you're, you know, filtering through, you know, bajillion applicants or, you know, figuring out who is the right person for this position. Um, you know, obviously we're, we're pretty time limited and so we can't talk to every single person that applies for 15 minutes to really scope it out. But, um, at least being, you know, intentional about what you are taking away from someone's resume and, and making sure that you're not, you know, leaning on some intrinsic bias accidentally um, and, and, you know, really like identifying, hey, like maybe this person hasn't, you know, had a, a job in exactly this field, but it looks like all these skills are really applicable. So, you know, maybe when you talk to them, they're, they're actually going to blow you away because, you know, maybe they haven't done exactly what you're doing, but they have all the right 
you know, pieces in place to be successful. And, and that's the thing. That's one thing that I wanted to ask you as well, given that you are technical, this is a technical company, it's hard tech specifically. What if you're someone like me, you're a non-technical kind of person, instead of a BS, a bachelor's of science, a bachelor's of engineering, you've got a bachelor of arts. Instead of a PhD, you've got an MBA or you've got a master of the arts. In your opinion, where do people like that fit within these organizations? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so, you know, in the beginning of starting a hard tech company in particular, um, it's very different than, you know, your typical B2B SaaS um, you know, software as a service, uh, right? Basically, app app focused companies that are out there, of which there are many, many, many companies like this. Um, and part of the reason, uh, part of the main differentiation is that from the beginning, um, you know, there can be a lot of, um, I guess, uh, marketing and um, PR and uh, all like all these you know aspects that all businesses have, but. Um, compared to hard tech in the beginning with a hard tech company, you are, you know, heads down focused on like, let's get this product to work. Of course, you also have to be talking to your customers and making sure that you're solving the problem. Right. But beyond that, you know, you're not, um, well, at least in our view, you shouldn't be going out and plastering, you know, your amazing thing that you have no idea if it actually works yet, um, everywhere. Right. Um, you know, there is some amount of, um, you know, gravity you need in your initial fundraise and there's some PR involved in that, but mm. we took the approach that, you know, we're, we weren't going to start going to conferences and, and trade shows until we have, you know, a pretty good handle on our performance data. So, you know, For we sure. recently got to 70% of our continuous power target with our third prototype. And so while we're not all the way to our, you know, 100% of our power goal, um, we've been making significant progress. It's, we've been proving it out. It's not a paper design. It's real. And for us, that was important because now when we go to those trade shows and make those connections, you know, we have the physical prototype and we can say, hey, like this actually did 140 kilowatts in our dyno. And we think that makes a lot bigger impact. Um, and so tying it back to, you know, the type of people you need to, to do something like this, um, I think the involvement of the non-technical people maybe comes at a slightly different stage for a hard tech company than for other software companies. I mean, especially right. software companies that are consumer facing, then it, it's like a whole different world. Um, and you need all sorts of people immediately from the beginning to, in order to collect the user base. Right. But for us, um, you know, we, we were heads down, build the technology, prove it out, um, you know, to, to the point where you see a clear path to achieving your goals. And right. then, you know, you can start bringing in more people and saying, okay, we, maybe we need a business development person um, to take on the mantle of having a lot of these conversations, um, you know, with potential customers. Of course, the founding team, we, we always like to be involved with in those conversations too. Um, but you start to see like, oh yeah, like this person could really help us out in this area. And, you know, they don't have to necessarily be super technical to make an impact. It just, I think, you know, it happens at a bit of a later stage um, for, for a hard tech company. That makes sense. And when you say later stage, do you feel that that's the technology itself being able to go to market? Do you feel that that's a certain level of funding? I mean, some of these projects that we hear about these days have hundreds of millions of funding and they're still in the prototype stages. What's your opinion? There? Right. Yeah, I think it's a combination of factors. Um, you know, personally, I think that technology development milestones are an important part of that just because, you know, you have a limited amount of funding initially, you know, from your seed round and 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think you need to prove to yourself that you can get to the minimum viable product first and foremost. And then, you know, from there you can say, okay, maybe we can allocate some of this funding to, to do, you know, some amount of business development or a right. little bit of PR and some marketing, you know, because that does, of course, that's important. Um, it's just a matter of, of when, and depending on your product and, and kind of your, um, timelines, you know, maybe it makes sense to wait to hire on, you know, a significant number of non-technical people until mm-hmm. after series A. There's also, you know, it's just right. a matter of, you know, uh, your case ability by case to, basis. I know yeah, what you mean. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that makes sense. Well, I'm going to combine two questions here because your team was recently featured in TechCrunch. Amazing. I saw the coffee mug by the motor. It was yeah. really cool. Um, where did kind of the expertise from your previous ventures come into play? And then how did you iterate? Yeah. Um, so the way that we kind of um, tackled this problem, the problem being um, how do you make electric propulsion light enough to power a reasonably large aircraft like a narrow body jet? And those are the ones with, you know, three seats on each side and one aisle, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, our approach from the beginning was, let's dig into the fundamentals here. You know, let's not jump into optimization or get lost in, you know, any fancy software. Let's just sit down and figure out, you know, where are the bottlenecks in the technology? What's preventing the current state of the art to get from three to four kilowatts of power per kilogram of mass um, to where it needs to be, which is closer to 12 kilowatts per kilogram. And that's could, kind of age Could you explain that as well? Um, some yeah. of the kilowatts per kilogram terminology? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, there, there's been a, a few papers and studies done. Um, one of them was by the um, Department of Energy um, Advanced Research Projects Agency. Um, and um, they basically laid out an outline that said, okay, if we are going to decarbonize aviation, you know, here's what the energy storage needs to do. And that means... Mm batteries it means fuel cells um maybe it even means series hybrid you know with a a gas turbine driving a generator and then having the rest of the powertrain be electric so like here's what the energy storage site needs to do but but also here's what the electric propulsion system needs to do um and for that there are two main factors there is how efficient is the electric propulsion system which is a purely energy conversion metric if i put you know, a hundred kilowatts in, how many kilowatts am I getting out? Um, and how right. much is lost to heat in between, right? Gotcha. And so okay. typically electric propulsion systems are over 90% efficient, but you know, every percent matters. Every uh, percent of energy you're not losing to heat is, um, you know, energy that you, you either do or don't need in your energy storage, right? So right. if you're 5% more efficient, you know, maybe you need 5% less battery, or maybe you need even less than that due to compounding effects. Um, but then the second metric that's important is the specific power or, you know, a lot of people say power density. So specific power is kilowatts per kilogram. So it's power output divided by mass of the system and the power density typically refers to the same thing, but instead of power divided by mass, it's power divided by volume. Um, and the reason it matters is, um, you know, specifically for aircraft, but also for other applications, um, you need a lot of power. You need a lot of power to take off. You need a lot of power to climb. And in the case of larger aircraft, you know, that might be megawatts of power. And so when you're talking, you know, a few kilowatts per kilogram, but you're in the megawatt class of power level, you're talking like 
thousands of kilograms of just electric motor, inverter, you know, gearbox, all this other, uh, all these other components that are pretty heavy. Um, and, and the thing is that, you know, while traditional turbofan, um, you know, high bypass ratio engines, which are like what you'd find on your typical planes that you fly around on slung under the wing, you know, mm-hmm. those are pretty lightweight for what, for what they can do. The thing is that their energy storage is super lightweight. So jet fuel right. is, is, far and away more energy dense than any other, you know, electric, uh, fuel, like a fuel cell electric system or a battery electric system. Got and it. so in order to get the whole plane to do what you want it to do, which is to say, carry this many passengers or, and, or this much cargo over mm-hmm. this distance, you know, you need to control how much mass is required to achieve those goals. Uh, and some of it's going to come from how heavy is the fuel cell or the battery. And some of it's going to come from how heavy are the electric motors. Yes. And and this (laughs) is the, the, the gap between traditional, you know, jet, a, um, combustion fuel systems, um, and electric is pretty large because there's currently this big gap in how heavy electric motors are versus those turbofan engines and how heavy, you know, batteries and fuel cells are versus, just a tank of jet fuel. Um, so it's a multi-pronged approach and it has to come, innovation has to come from all sides. So right. we at H3X are focusing on the electric propulsion system aspect. And we have said that we're kind of um, energy storage agnostic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we mean by that is that, you know, we want to see all of these forms of energy storage improve and succeed. So, you know, battery electric is too heavy for, um, for you know, a couple hundred mile flights um, with any significant number of passengers. That's okay though, because it's it's definitely able to power eVTOL aircraft that are only flying you know tens of miles within a city. That can be fully battery electric, and that's great. Right. And you know, our lightweight propulsion technology has a role to play in those types of vehicles. Um, but when you start going to you know other um, applications like regional air mobility, where you have mm. a couple hundred miles um, that you need to travel and you have, you know, maybe 19 passengers or maybe 49 passengers, you know, something like that. Um, batteries just don't cut it anymore. Even the latest and greatest batteries are too heavy because you need so much energy to carry all of those people and cargo that distance um, right. that the battery ends up being like it, the, the system doesn't work. Uh, basically, it's too heavy. So you, then you move to fuel cell systems, um, which are less efficient, but are much more energy dense. Um, and so you know, now you're saying, okay, let's take a, a fuel cell system, combine it with a, a lightweight propulsion system. And with mm-hmm. that, the latest and greatest technology of today, you know, we're getting to the point where you, know, you can architect a vehicle that can go hundreds of miles and be completely emissions free, um, assuming that the hydrogen infrastructure is there and that it's produced in a green way. Um, so of right. course there are always uh, caveats, but um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of how we approach it is, you know, our technology has a role, has a role to play regardless of if it's an intra-city, you know, short hop eVTOL, or if it's a longer range, narrow body jet trying to go, you know, from city to city within the U S for example. Absolutely. And the reason I am so optimistic about the tech that you're building is because there is the market risk, but you guys are solving that. There are so many regional airports. I think the NASA study kind of showcased that where there's 
thousands of regional airports and the tens to hundreds that get used. So yeah, well, I think what, what ends up happening is that like you have, you know, thousands of airports in the United States and um, it's like 90% of air traffic goes through like 10% of the airports. Like it, it's, exactly. it's completely, you know, it, I mean, it's the hub and spoke model, right? And that's, the airlines have done that because it's more profitable that way. You know, mm-hmm. it's more profitable to, to shuttle people through these massive hubs and, and pack them onto larger planes because the operating costs of, you know, the uh, cost per passenger per mile or the cost right. per passenger mile is lowest by doing it like that. So what what you can do when you have an enabling technology like the one that we're building is, um, you know, if you can get a, a narrow body jet to now, you know, do a couple hundred mile flight, uh, but on an electric system, mm-hmm. um, the operating costs are m- much, much lower. We're talking like between 40 to 60% lower. Uh, the main reasons why are, um, the maintenance of electric motors and propulsion system, electric propulsion is way, way less complicated and needs to happen less frequently than for a turbofan, you know, engine, which has, you know, right. tens of thousands of unique parts. Every time it needs to get overhauled, the entire thing gets disassembled, um, or almost the entire thing gets disassembled. And then, mm-hmm. um, in a lot, in many cases, more than half of those components have to get replaced with new ones before it gets reassembled. So the cost of overhauling a turbofan engine is understandably pretty high. Whereas for an electric propulsion system, you're talking, okay, maybe every 10,000 hours or 20,000 hours, we have to replace some bearings, right? It's mm-hmm. like a completely different type of situation. Of course, you still need to inspect things um, on, at certain intervals. Um, there's right. no getting away from that. But the actual maintenance itself is much cheaper. And then, of course, electricity is a lot cheaper than jet fuel, especially right now. I mean, oil prices right now are crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And so it really just drives home that, like, you know, how much, how many dollars per kilowatt hour is it right now? And then how many dollars per barrel of oil is it right now? And so like, how are those competing and, and what are the cost uh, trade-offs? Um, and so you know, when you combine those two factors, those are the two main factors in the operating cost in terms of um, cost per passenger uh, mile. And so that's, that's kind of the whole business case. It, it, it is there already. You know, if we can utilize these airports that already exist, that are in smaller, you know, uh, smaller towns or cities, uh, that are closer to people, so they don't need to travel an hour to an airport, then exactly. you know, we can make these routes profitable again, which, of course, the airline wants. The airline wants to be able to run these routes because they can make money doing that. They just don't mm-hmm. have the technology to do it yet. So that's kind of where we come in. That's awesome. Your team has 300 million in LOIs, which is insane. I believe you did that in under 18 months as well, which is very great growth. Um, it sounds like the market risk is mitigated because here's all this infrastructure that can be utilized if an efficient way of using it is created. It sounds like technical risk is the hard part. And I would love for you to explain that a little bit more. You mentioned that energy storage agnostic is a big thing for you. Does that open up the door to more technical risk or does that make it easier to pivot if, if things yeah. change? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So, um, yeah, certainly um, we, we think the business case is there and it's, it's pretty solid. There is definitely, uh, it's kind of it's kind of the traditional electrification concept of it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when 
And in our opinion, you know, with our technology, we can make that when much sooner than it would be otherwise. So it's sort of accelerating that transition. Um, So, uh, yeah, and and with, of course, with the LOIs, you know, that also is a big de-risk on the the business case. There is definitely demand for a product of this caliber. Um, That's the whole reason we're doing this. Um, And so, like you said, you know, it comes down to, okay, you know, what is new about the technology and, and what risks are associated with that? Um, so the way that we manage technical risk, um, is we, we take the, at least in this initial stage of, um, you know, proving out the technology is we take the 80, 20 approach, um, where we say, okay, let's spend enough time in our simulation tools, our analytical models, um, to convince ourselves that, you know, this thing is going to do what we think it's going to do. Right. Right. Um, whatever that may be. Um, there are a lot of different things that uh, an electric propulsion system has to do. Um, but you know, we're not, we're not going to sit in simulation land and try to make the most high fidelity model possible and spend a bajillion dollars on, you know, really fancy software packages. Um, in the beginning, that doesn't make any sense. So what we're going to do is we're going to get 80% of the way to what we think is what we need to be doing with the design. Then we're going to build one. And then we're mm-hmm. going to learn a whole lot building one. Um, right. Our first unit had uh, a plethora of problems, um, which is to be expected, right? It's the first time we built it. There were a lot of things we didn't know we didn't know, right? Um, and then we we found out we didn't know, um, which right. is all part of the process. Um, so we built that one. It did spin. Uh, it wasn't great. Um, and we, we learned a whole lot from that process. And, and uh, we then soon after said, okay, here are all the issues. We're aware of them implement some solutions, great, let's build the second prototype. So we went and built the second prototype. Um, Every time we iterate and build a new prototype, build quality goes up substantially. We take all the learnings from the last one, roll them into the new one. And so that iterative pace is is the heartbeat and the driver of the technology, um, you know, increasing in readiness level. Um, And so we, with our third prototype, we've gotten to 70% of our power target now, um, which is, you know, I think a testament to just how big each, you know, step change had to be going from the first one to the second one to the third one, where the first Mm -hmm. one was, was just pretty much able to spin, didn't produce much power. That's okay though. Um, Whereas, you know, now we're 70% of the way there. Um, So it's, it's really about identifying uh, the trade-offs and how you spend your time and resources. You know, if we had spent all of that time in simulation land for that first prototype, you know, it would have been two years later and we would have just built the first one and we would have realized all of those issues that those things that we didn't know, we didn't know. Right. So that's where that iteration comes in. And now, of course, now that we have a product that's getting towards our targets, now we're going back to simulation and trying to see, okay, we're experiencing this issue. What exactly is going on? Can we correlate it to a model and then use that model to design a solution? Um, so it's sort of being agile and being efficient with your use of you know, your engineering resources. Absolutely. Well, we're approaching time here. And again, Max, a huge thank you. I said I've been following your company for a while. I really did mean it. Um, let me ask this, because as a founder, there's so much going on. It's such a fast pace. Everything's changing constantly. What is something that you're passionate about that you don't get asked about a lot? Yeah, um, well, 
um, I am a musician. Um, and so I, from a very young age, I think I was five or six when I started playing the cello. Um, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, I continued to play through, um, of course, high school, um, undergraduate. Uh, my did you play in the Wisconsin degree. football band? Uh, no, I, I did not. Uh. <laughs> I did play in the UW Symphony, though. Um, oh, that's so amazing. That was, that's awesome. That was a great experience. Um, and and uh, I think um, there's there's two important things, I think, when it comes to, to music. Um, you know, everyone's heard of like, oh, you know, kids who do music do better on their math SAT scores, which, you know, is right. great. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. I don't think SAT scores are by any means the end goal, but, um, you know, it's a good indicator, I guess. Um, but, but there is something that, you know, starting, um, to play an instrument at such a young age does to, um, you know, I think form your perspective on, um, learning and, and right. sort of the, the framework of learning. Um, part of it is being able to recognize patterns, um, you know, something as simple as that, which is, you know, um, you know, when you're learning music, it's all about patterns initially, just to the structure of it all, you know. Um, but then, you know, there's, it, it translates into, okay, now you're getting better at music. Someone can put a piece of sheet music in front of you and you can sight read it, right? Which means that maybe you're not going to get it all right, but you can kind of play through it and get most of it. Um, right. So the ability to you know have something new put in front of you, uh, see the big picture, and then you know get eighty percent of it like that that is a, a very important skill I think throughout Absolutely. you know life and 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 your career. Um, the the other aspect is that um, in a more uh, I guess uh, maybe nerdy way or a more uh, technical way, you know there are many different seemingly unrelated um, fields. Um, or topics that are have actually more overlap than you might think. So, you know, when we're talking about uh, electric motors, there's all sorts of um, frequency content. There's all this frequency analysis that goes into, you know, uh, noise and vibration, but also right. into the actual power production. And um, and when you when you listen to music, you know, it, a lot of times you're not really thinking about exactly how it was constructed or or you know what the intent was behind it. But um, especially with like electronic music, for example, where people are not only making, you know, art through making songs, but they're also making art through making sounds. Um, mm -hmm. They are, you know, kind of literally creating these instruments from from scratch and they're making, um, you know, in addition to the the, the sounds and the, or in addition to like the music that you're hearing, they're also making the instruments that make the music. Right. Um, and so, you know, music has this kind of, um, multi-layer, um, aspect to it that I think, you know, engineering has too, where when you're designing a product, you're not just finding the optimal thing. You need to be asking yourself, like, you know, what, what is limiting this? What are the material limits? How can I push those limits in the same right. way that you're not just trying to write a song, you're trying to make the instruments, Right. And so Absolutely. when we go and innovate in, in the areas of materials or manufacturing, that's us making the instruments. And then the product is, you know, the song that comes from the instruments. So I don't know. I think that's kind of neat. That's awesome. As someone that did EDM production and did DJing through school, that did hit home. So I think that's a great place to leave it. And again, a huge thank you, Max Levin, CTO, co-founder, H3X. Thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it.